superstition, a passage that I love so dearly. Um, Second Peter uh, chapter 3 and verse 16. It says, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those, whoops, that's not it. <laughs> Let's try again, verse 15. But in your hearts, honor Christ as Honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet, do it with gentleness and respect. And that's what we're going to try to do as we try to answer these questions. Um, again, trusting God to lead us. Now, the first question, maybe just moving out of the physical realm and moving into the spiritual realm. Um, one of the questions that we received was, when were angels and celestial beings created, and what ministry do they serve in our lives? I can try that one. <laughs> I wish the Bible had given us um, specifics as to when, um, exactly when they were created. Um, but I don't think we've got um, anything like that in the Bible. However, we'll try to, um, to, to see what the Bible says about, about creation um, in general, and then we will draw, I think, some, some conclusions. And the best place to, to start, I think, it's Genesis chapter 1, uh, verse 1. Um, in the beginning, God um, created the heavens and the earth. Um, and we know that angels are celestial beings, um, so they weren't on the earth, but they were created, I think, to inhabit uh, what, uh, the heavens. Um, but which day specifically were they created, um, we can speculate. Uh, but if we can turn to Genesis again, chapter 2, uh, verse 1, the Bible says, Thus the heavens and the earth were uh, finished, and all the hosts of them. Um, the term host um, is a reference to uh, celestial beings. And this verse speaks of uh, the complete work of salvation, sorry, not of salvation, but of creation. Mm. So God had created the world uh, in six days, and then the seventh day he rested. So chapter 2, verse 1 tells us that when uh, the work of creation was completed, uh, that the heavens and the earth were finished and all the host of them, meaning between day one and day six, angels were created. But when exactly, the Bible is quiet about it. However, if we go to Job chapter 36, and if we can turn there, Job chapter 36. Sorry, 38, verse 6 to 7. Bible says, On what were its bases sunk? 
who laid its cornerstone, when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Now, the term uh, morning stars uh, is a reference, again, to celestial beings. And this passage seems to indicate that there were celestial beings when God laid the foundations of the earth. Uh, And we know that the Bible says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Uh, So we are referring to day one. Um, But were they created uh, on day one? Again, this will be speculations. So, but one thing that is certain is they were created between the first and the sixth day. That's what I can say. So maybe just to add in terms of um, the angels' uh, role in, they basically servants and, and messengers of, of God. Um, and they minister. We see in Hebrews chapter 1, um, and that, and that, chapters, um, as, as Pastor Charles covered it when he started, it's pointing out that Jesus is greater than the angels. And then in verse 14, uh, speaking of the angels, is saying, Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? And so, uh, later on, it, uh, it will say, the author of Hebrews carries on saying uh, that uh, to believers to be hospitable because uh, even then they might be hosting uh, angels. And so the angels uh, have, uh, uh, in a way, points us that there is a spiritual realm out out there. Uh, We see this in the Psalms, God sending angels to a camp around uh, the people of, of God and in protection, and there is a realm that we don't see, but it's very, very real. And, and they are uh, ministry, uh, they are beings that, that minister to, to believers. Yeah. You know, and I also wanted to add um, something that, that I must say. So the, the consensus, what I'm hearing is uh, they were created by God, we don't know specifically when in the creation order, um, but then Isaac just ended up by saying they were created by God to be ministering spirits. Uh, but something that, that also encouraged me is Colossians 1 verse 16, a passage we all know dearly. It says this, For by him, this is Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all were created through him and for him. Uh, we usually get the impression that, you know, angels are these glorious beings, but as glorious as they are, they are also subject to Christ uh, who created them. Whether angels or demons, all are created beings subject to Christ. All right, maybe we should move on there. So this is a question that I'm sure many have asked before. Um, many probably still don't have a clearer answer on what the answer is to this question. Um, but the question is, which is the unpardonable sin? Right, uh, Jabu, am I going to pick up, or at least begin on that one? Uh, 
Perhaps uh, one or two comments just before I begin. Uh, the, the more I uh, read the scriptures, the more theology I get to know, the less I think I actually know. Uh, I think that's, there's so much to know because God is eternal, um, God is infinite, and we are finite creatures. So that's my first excuse. My, my, my second excuse is a wonderful scripture in Deuteronomy 29, 29. And uh, if ever you want to use this verse, please feel free to do so. It says there, uh, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, and the things revealed belong to us and our children forever. Now, that's a bit tongue-in-cheek, but at the same time, it's true. We don't know everything. But we need to focus on what God has given us and, and, and go from there. So to, to make an attempt at this particular question, I think it is an important question, and it is a question that many people ask, especially those of us who are believers. As we go along in our lives, we wonder, is there something I do or can do that will disqualify me, that will bring me to a particular place of uh, not being forgiven, uh, blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, or what is often called the unpardonable or the unforgivable uh, sin. So looking into this, there are some passages that speak to it in the Gospels, three passages specifically. And uh, Jesus uh, is being accused there in the one passage by some uh, lawyers, some religious leaders, uh, about representing uh, the devil. And it's in that context that Jesus says, you know, blasphemy against uh, himself will be forgiven, but not against the Spirit. So, so w what does that mean? Now, again, we need to go to what we do know. And immediately I did go to John chapter 3, which is the well-known passage for all of us. Uh, God so loved the world, he uh, gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. And then he goes on to speak about those who believe are not condemned. And those who do not believe are already condemned. So the issue is believing in Jesus or not believing in Jesus. So the unpardonable sin is the sin where people or individuals, men and women, uh, dig their feet in, dig their heels in against God, constant, constantly refusing Him, and, and, and being in a place where they have no desire even to ask for forgiveness or to seek salvation. And so... The unpardonable sin is, is not so much that pardon won't be given or granted. It's rather that it won't be sought. So it's the hardness of an individual's heart reaching a particular place uh, because of unbelief and uh, turning his or her back against God. So maybe I don't know if... Quint, are you going to add to that? Yeah, yeah I'll just add to that. Thanks, Pastor Charles. Um, yeah, you know, normally people ask the question because they, they, they're wondering, you know, have I committed the sin? You know, and um, it's almost like asking the question, am I elect? You know, I'm, I'm, I'm afraid that, that I might not be elect. Well, normally those, you know, if, you, if, you, if you're afraid, if you're worried about that, you, you probably haven't committed the unpardonable sin. Uh, because like, like you mentioned, um, you know, these people know the truth about who Jesus is. They saw Jesus. They, they saw his, his work. And then they willfully rejected that and didn't want anything to do with that. So it's just that, that hardness of heart, that turning away. Um, just something interesting. Just in, um, uh, Some say that 
this sin could, could only be done when, when Jesus was on earth. So some people say, um, this, this blasphemy, blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, uh, this unpardonable sin could only have been done uh, by those who, who saw Jesus, who witnessed his life, who witnessed the, the miracles, and then turned and then didn't believe. Um, but it, it doesn't seem like that. It seems like even later on, again, Pastor Charles preached the passage in, in Hebrews, for example, which speaks about the warnings of, of seeing God's work, the work of the Holy Spirit, being around that, and, and then turning. Um, so just, that, yeah, just to add, add that. Cool, just to keep us moving before Ramaphosa comes in. Um, one of the, the third question that we received was, conscious of mind and acting upon it. How is acting against or acting against one's conscience sinful? Q. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, just amazingly, God has given everyone a conscience. Yeah, we know that. Um, if you if you think about it, basically, uh, just our, our conscience is is the the ability to self-evaluate, isn't it? The ability to self-evaluate, and obviously, we know that we do that self-evaluation, and it's based on on God's word, God's standard, whether something is right or wrong. Um, but also, we know that uh, Romans, Paul writes in Romans, and he says that um, the the Gentiles, you know, he's written the law, his law on their hearts. So their conscience accuses or excuses them. So we know that even unbelievers have a conscience that, that knows whether what they do is right or wrong. So, um, but just to get back to the question, um, how is sinning against one's conscience? You know, how, let me just read the question again, sorry. Um, how is acting against or upon one's conscience sinful? Um, I think the best explanation that I've heard of this is it's, do, so your conscience tells you not to do something. So maybe it, it is a sinful thing, or maybe it's not a sinful thing, but your conscience says don't do that. So you go against your conscience, and, and you do that thing. And so what happens when you do something against your conscience? How do you feel? Guilty. Guilty. So with that going against your conscience, there's the guilt that follows, and then after that, there's the, what typically follows after that guilt is you want to fix it. But maybe it's even something that, that you shouldn't have feel, felt guilty about, you know. But you, you go against your conscience, there's this guilt, and then after that there's the legalism that follows after that instead of the freedom that God gives us. So going against your conscience, I mean, that's the, the progression. So, and then also maybe just to add, maybe Job will also add to this, but um, if you can't do anything in faith, Romans, Romans 14 speaks about that. Um, you know, that is sin. And, and, when you, when, and, and again, that comes just back to if you can't do anything um, in loving the Lord, in, in obedience to Him, in, with a clear conscience, that is sin. So maybe Job will add to that. Sure. So in Romans chapter 14, verse 23, this is sort of where the question stems from. Um, Romans uh, fourteen twenty three says, But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because he is eating not from faith. But, but, who, but whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Mm-hmm. Now we sort of have a dilemma here. Mm-hmm. If your conscience is going to lead you to sin and you sin, 
you have sinned against God. But if you act against your conscience, you've sinned against God. Mm. That's a weird dilemma there. But I heard a really good example from, I think it was R.C. Sproul, who said, if you were taught, so I hope no one's wearing lipstick tonight, if, if you were taught and you have come to believe that wearing lipstick is a sin against God, and you've come to believe that to be sin, and you go on and wear lipstick anyway, you've sinned against God. The sin is not in the wearing of the lipstick. The sin is in the intent where you have believed that this was a sin against God, and you went to act on that sin. So you've actively gone against God. Now, if you, if you think about what Paul was teaching, Paul was teaching about eating. So uh, some people were comfortable to eat pork because they realized the freedoms that they had in Christ. But he was saying there were those who were taught and have come to believe that eating pork is a sin against God. And every time they ate it, they were not eating in faith because their consciences were not clear. They felt as though this is a sin against God. So if they went on to partake in it and they had no faith, they would be sinning against God because of the intent. Their intent was they are actively sinning against God. And this is that beautiful reminder that, that God does not merely look on the outside, but he looks at our hearts. And that's really um, what the issue was in this passage. Yeah, please. The, the, the way I, I like looking at our conscience um, is like God's uh, built-in mechanism you know, within each person to distinguish between right and wrong. And when your conscience reproaches you of something, the, the natural response will be, okay, let me repent or let me not go ahead with what I wanted to do. Mm. Uh, but when we consciously or consciously go ahead and commit it without feeling any guilt, um, there is a risk of us completely forgetting about the nature of the action we just posed and we go on with it, and then we run the risk of our conscience, like the Bible says, becoming seared, mm. completely unresponsive, sure. um, completely desensitized. Um, so we, we really need to be careful um, with this God's built-in mechanism in us to distinguish between right and wrong. Maybe I can just also mention that, I mean, you can, your conscience can convict you that something's wrong. But over time, with the teaching of the scriptures, your conscience might change on an issue. You know, and, and I've seen that as well. You know, we see that, for example, um, let me use the example of wearing a suit and a tie. In, in the past, some people were very, you know, their conscience, if they, if they came to church not in a suit and tie, it, it, would have, it would have been a sin for them, really. But over time with teaching, they relax on that. Why? Because their conscience has now not accused them anymore with mm. teaching over time. So things, things can change as well. So. Sure. Maybe we should just add there, just so that we're not misunderstood. <laughs> and I'm not worried about suits and ties. <laughs> but there are things that are unchangeably, uh, unchangeable truth. Yeah, yeah. So they always remain right. They're yeah. always wrong. Absolutely. And then there are things at another level that yeah. we would call preferences. Yes. Yeah. And, and to use the example, I mean, there's a big thing happening now in the Southern Baptist where, where one of the pastors said God whispers about sexual sin and he shouts about other things. So he, he used a, a, an example of R.C. Sproul out of context. Where R.C. Sproul says, if you look at the Bible, there are some things that God whispers about 
Like, for example, eschatology. It's, it's, a, it's an open hand. You know, there's differences of views on eschatology. But there's some things, closed hand, that God shouts about. We don't, we don't you know. Um, and so, exactly. Like you're saying. <laughs> to keep to his on elders on track. <laughs> <laughs> well, since we are talking about the insides, uh, this is a good question. Uh, how often should we be convicted by the Spirit? How often should we be convicted by the Spirit? That's a good question. I think the Holy Spirit, of course, being God, um, one of his ministries is to convict the world of sin. And he will go as far as, or he'll continue to do so up until we decide not to listen to him anymore. Uh, what I mean by that is, if we look at both the Old and the New Testament, we've got, I think, examples of, uh, of people who... Um, were working in disobedience to God, and God sent um, his messengers, and they warned them, and you've got those who repented, but you also have examples of those who uh, refused to repent, and I think an example that comes to mind is, is that of Saul. Uh, and we know that for persisting in his, in his disobedience, um, he ended up being rejected by God. Um, completely. Um, and, and we've got other examples again in the New Testament, even the people of Israel, you know, they received all the warnings that God could give, uh, but we know they continuously uh, rejected God and they ended up going to captivity. Uh, so it seems like there is uh, the grace of God is available to each one warning us, the Holy Spirit warning us, but when we refuse to um, heed to the words of God, then we are to suffer the consequences. Um, and we see that as well, I think, in the New Testament. Um, if you, you consider uh, in the book of Acts, for instance, uh, Ananias and Sapphira, and Sapphira, or Sapphira they also um, suffered the wrath of God as a result of disobeying and not listening to to what God was, was telling them. So I think there is a time given to us by God to repent of, um, of our sins as he warns us uh, through uh, the Holy Spirit. But if we continue to reject uh, God and we continue to refuse um, to give heed to his word uh, via the Holy Spirit, specifically pointing those sins uh, out, uh, we are running the risk of uh, suffering the consequences of our rejection of God. And I think the book of Hebrews as well is clear on that. Pastor Charles preached about the consequences of us rejecting uh, um, God and continuing in sin. Okay. I, I want to chip in over there. When I, when I was a teenager, first converted, we had a youth pastor that taught us uh, a very helpful thing that I'm using still to this day in my Christian life. 
uh, we're, we're told to keep in step with the Spirit, uh, be filled with the Spirit. So practically, what does that mean in regard to this question? Well, he taught us five things. Um, when we are living our lives and we do things, sometimes we grieve the Spirit of God. And it is the work of the Spirit to convict us of our sin. Patrick has, has said that. But then if there is this relationship where we are keeping in step or we ought to be keeping in step and we're walking with this, the, the Spirit, the Spirit takes the first step. He convicts. Then I need to take the next step, which is how do I respond to that conviction is I need to confess my sin. And then he takes the next step and he cleanses me. If you confess your sin, he's faithful and just and will forgive you of all unrighteousness. And then as, as, as he cleanses, then I need to commit and say, well, Lord, help me please not to do this again as I keep in step with you, to be filled with your spirit. And then he takes control. So just five C's I learned when I was 16 years old. And I've, I've remembered that to this day. And it's conviction, confession, uh, cleansing, commitment, control. So just for what it's worth, youth pastors were fantastic, and I still think they are fantastic, <laughs> teaching young Christians how to walk with the Lord. Yeah, just um, also um, the, this conviction that the Holy Spirit, Spirit brings. Um, someone used the example. They said it's like a, a prosecuting attorney. So when you've sinned, you know, the, the Holy Spirit comes and convicts you of your sin. You know, points out the, the, the terribleness of your sin. It's, it's not just um, making you feel guilty. You know, a lot of people think they, they're, being you know, they, they're convicted over their sin when they just feel guilty. The, the, this conviction that the Bible speaks about, it's a... It's uh, seeing the seriousness and the, how terrible your sin is against a holy God. So that is, that's conviction. Like the Holy Spirit being like a prosecuting attorney. But I don't, I don't want us to, th to think to stop there. And a lot of times people stop there with the conviction. And maybe for whoever asked this question, uh, you know, I want to remind you to move on to the advocate. To remember the advocate that you've got. Um, and so we sometimes forget that the Holy Spirit comes, brings conviction so that we can remember to, to turn to Christ and what Christ has done for us, mm. um, that He's our advocate, that, he, that He's our defense, um, that, he, that he, he, you know, when, when, even when Satan accuses us, Christ comes and He says, it is finished, it's paid for. Uh, remember an illustration of a sculptor. Uh, when he starts, this rock is, is this ugly image, this big thing just sitting there. And he picks up his chisel and he's just going. And the idea is as the Spirit is chiseling us and uh, removing this, the sin on us, he is making us more and more like Christ. Uh, so there's that beautiful image that we've come like this huge stone which has no form and we are made into this beautiful image of Christ. And this chiseling process is putting to death the sin and making us more and more like Christ. Moving on there. So the next question is, how do we reconcile the fact that God is sovereign over all things, even the smallest, most random events, such as the roll of a dice, with God uh, not causing us to sin? As we know, He does not. Can we say that He is not sovereign over sin? He is not surprised when we sin, for he already knows that it will happen. How does one reconcile this? 
I think I can start for us here. Um, the Westminster Shorter Catechism, um, I want to read it before I just share my answer here. Uh, so the Westminster Shorter Catechism says, God from, from all eternity did by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will freely and unchangeably ordain whatsoever comes to pass. Yet, so as thereby, that's a lot of words, yet so as thereby, neither is, there, is God the author of sin, nor is violence offered to the will of the creatures, nor is the liberty or contingency of second causes taken away, but rather established. So God is the first cause of all things, but evil is a product of second causes. The, the, the image here is the garden. In the Garden of Eden, we have God being the first cause created Adam and Eve, and he has placed them in the garden. And he, is, he had given them one command that if you, you can eat of any tree in the garden, but if you eat of the tree of the knowledge and good and, good and evil, uh, then you would have sinned against me. But he said, you shall surely die. Now we note that when the deceiver came in, God again reminded Eve of the command that she heard God give to Adam. That if you can eat of any tree in the garden, but if you eat of the tree of the knowledge and good and evil, you shall surely die. So God had given first cause, he created the garden, he placed man in the garden, and he had given them a command. But what he did not take away was their responsibility. Eve had the responsibility there to, as she remembered what God had told her husband Adam, to not partake of the fruit. Adam also had the responsibility, as, she remember, as, he, as he remembered what God had commanded to him, to also tell his wife not to partake of the fruit, and therefore himself not partake of the fruit. But Adam, we note, he partook of the fruit, and therefore sinned against the holy God. So we note that God, being the first cause, the creator of all things, and created all things good, but evil being a result of, of, of secondary causes, God therefore can use these secondary causes for his good. So Eve therefore sins, and God says, sorry, Adam sins, and God says, I will bring about a seed who is going to crush the head of the serpent. So God is able to use this secondary cause, which was sin, to use it to bring glory to himself. So does God sin? He can't. Because God cannot tempt anyone to sin, for God cannot sin. But in, in us being mankind, God granting us responsibility, we have therefore sinned, and God can use the evil that we do to bring about good. Thank you. Yeah, and, um, and again, we see another example in, in Jesus' crucifixion. Um, another great example. I mean, in in Acts chapter chapter four, just from verse twenty, um, from from twenty seven, it says, uh, just speaking about Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and and all the people of Israel, they did whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. So, so who killed Jesus? Who did all these things? I mean, Herod, um, Pontius Pilate, with the people of Israel, the Gentiles. But they only did what God's hand um, predetermined to take place. Um, so we see God's sovereignty, but we also see man's responsibility, uh, that man will be responsible. 
Um, and we see it with David, for example, as well. And, I, and maybe, again, and again, I just want to come to the heart of whoever asked this question. You might ask this question because you're thinking, um, if God is sovereign, um, maybe you want to put the blame on God when you sin. You know, you, you want to do some, or you've done some terrible things, and you want to say it's God's fault. You want to be like Adam and Eve. It's the woman you gave me, or it's, you know, it's, this, it's the serpent. So you want to blame God. Um, or maybe what you want to do is you're thinking of doing something, and you say, well, at least I can say God was over this. But if you see, if you look at David's life, for example, um, David committed the sin with, with Bathsheba. Um, did, did God make him sin? No. But in the biggest scheme of all of it, God allowed it so that a lot of good would come from it. Um, God allowed it for God's purpose. But did David still face the consequences of his sin, of his choices? Yes. So if you want to use that excuse to say, well, God's going to be over my sin, so I can just as well go do whatever I want. This is in God's plan and his purpose. Don't forget that sin comes with consequences. Mm -hmm. Okay. So. Maybe if I can just add as well, just coming back to the crucifixion. The Bible also doesn't, um, uh, doesn't allow us to call evil good just because God's plan worked out, yeah. right? So, so what the, the trial of, of Jesus and, um, and, and those that accused him, they were wrong, they were evil men, those actions were evil, they were bad. And, but at the same time, um, as Q read it there, it was God's plan. In other words, there was no chance of Jesus not dying on the cross. It was a, a plan set in place in stone. It was going to happen. God not only allowed it, but intended it sure. for our salvation. And so it is a little bit mind-boggling, you know, right? But... but uh, this is, and whatever God does and, and His plans, we know from His nature, His is good. Is good. His His essence is is good, and so the Bible doesn't allow us to call evil good and good evil. Um, those that do evil, um, they are guilty of that evil, though it may be part of the plan of God for something uh, greater and good. And again, I just want to say, you know, this is the value of expository preaching. Because I remember Pastor Charles, I remember Joel preaching a sermon, for example, on the will of God. You know, God's decreed will and His, His will of command. You know, um, God commands us to do things. Does God say, don't commit adultery? Yes. So can you go against that will of God? Yes, you can. But can you go against God's ultimate plan and His purpose? Mm. No, you can't. Sure, maybe just changing gears there. Uh, why do we meet on a Sunday? How do we interpret the Sabbath within the context of the fourth commandment? This is in response to the Seventh-day Adventists. So am I, am I going or are you going? <laughs> okay. Well, look, very quickly, because our time is marching on, so I can use that as an excuse. Uh, but there, there actually are good reasons why we do meet on a Sunday. And we do notice in, in, the, in the New Testament, in the book of Acts, beginning to unfold, that the church started meeting on what became known as the Lord's Day, and, and simply because it was the day that Jesus rose from the dead. Mm. And so there is the celebration of the victory over sin and death, 
the accomplishment of redemption that is celebrated and the anticipation of that which will come in the second coming, some of the stuff that we were singing, singing about tonight. Um, whereas uh, if we go back to the Old Testament and the, the, the Sabbath day being the last day of the week, um, there is the sense in which they are looking forward to the Sabbath rest. There's a symbolism over there. Whereas once Jesus is crucified and resurrected and ascended, we now are able to begin the week knowing that this has been accomplished, that we've already entered into the rest of God. So that's kind of a brief answer. In terms of the Seventh-day Adventists, that's, that's kind of a, a, a big issue or a big subject. Uh, they, they are uh, Seventh-day Adventists are very similar in many of the beliefs that we would hold as evangelicals, but three areas that they would differ in. The one area would be Sabbatarianism, so they would take a literal and, 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 and a reversion to keeping the Saturday holy called Sabbatarianism, and, and they would argue that it was wrong uh, to uh, meet on a Sunday. And then they have a great emphasis or a big emphasis, I don't think it's a great emphasis, a terrible emphasis, on, on uh, excessive prophecy. In fact, the whole movement is founded on the basis of multiple visions and, and, and dreams that a certain lady by the name, I think her name was Ellen White, um, had. And, then, and, and part of that prophecy was, it was said in 1800 and something by one of the leaders, I think his name was Miller or the Miller writes, that Jesus was going to return by a certain date. 1840-something. He didn't come. And of course, most people said, well, this is egg in your face. This is wrong. And, and the movement said, no, 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 no. You, you, you misunderstand this. Jesus did come, but he didn't come to earth. We got, we got the timing right. We got the place wrong. <laughs> and, and, and so the place that he came was apparently the sanctuary. They call it sanctuary, sanctuariness or something to that effect. So they, they use Hebrews chapter 4. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tested in every way. And they say that Jesus moved to a sanctuary. So in those three areas, I think we would see the Seventh-day Adventists off track, including the Sabbath. And I think we have good reasons as to why. I don't know if, Quint, are you going to add or? They also uh, view highly one of their leaders, uh, whom they compare to Christ, if I'm not mistaken. I can't remember. Don't know, Patrick. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe just a word of warning there. Almost every cult uh, has its origin in somebody that has stood up and said, I've heard from God. Uh, Muhammad, in the whole uh, development of Islam, is on the basis of him having supposedly heard from God. Uh, Seventh-day Adventism, exactly the same. Somebody heard from God. Uh, Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormonism, the same thing. Be careful when people stand up and say they've heard from God and it doesn't line up with the Scriptures. Um, so then, why do Luke and Matthew record two different genealogies for Jesus? <laughs> Look, I'll, I'll introduce it, and then maybe somebody else can pick it up from there. I think, I think there's an important apologetic uh, exercise in this question. 
The, the important lesson is you read two different passages, and at first glance they appear to be contradictory. And we think, hang on a minute, is the Bible inaccurate? Are there some mistakes in the Bible? So a good approach in apologetics accepts the Bible to be true. And so what we want to do then is we say, right, we've got this genealogy in the book of Matthew. We've got this genealogy in the book of he, uh, Luke. How do we reconcile the differences? Now, let's just take an everyday example. You're traveling down Francis Bart Street, and somebody jumps a robot, and there's an accident. You see that accident, and you report it to the police, and you will report certain facts and certain truths with certain emphasis. Somebody standing in another place will go to the police station, and they will report that accident, and the, the report will not be exactly the same. Because we are finite people with limited perspectives. So when we go back to the genealogies, we need to say, right, what was the perspective and what was the purpose, what was the intention that Luke had? And what was the intention and the perspective and the interest that Matthew had? And so if we look at these two genealogies, and this is where I'm going to start passing it on, <laughs> is there are different views. There are explanations. The one explanation is Matthew uh, has an interest in speaking to the Jewish community, and he goes back as far as Abraham. I hope I'm getting my facts uh, right over here. And, and he, he focuses more on what would be um, uh, a kingly or um, uh, what's the, the right word? Uh, or let's say a, a kingly succession and progression in, in bringing about uh, a history in terms of the birth of Jesus. And then we need to also understand that the Jewish mind was very different to the Western mind that we have been taught and been raised in, and that we're very consecutive and, and linear in our thinking, and they were far more circular in their thinking. And so is he actually giving all the details? He may not be. He may be giving selective information for the accomplishment of what he's trying to do. And when you go to Luke, there's a different emphasis because now the emphasis is back to Adam. And there's a purpose in that particular line. So that, that's some of the, the, the reasoning. Um, other reasonings, another theory is that uh, one is giving a genealogy of Joseph. The other one is giving a genealogy of Mary. Um, but perhaps somebody else would like to pick it up from there. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, to keep it pretty short, uh, Mr. Charles covered most of it, but in, in, in Matthew, we see as Matthew is writing to the Jewish audience about the Messiah King, um, he's showing how Christ comes from, the, from this kingly line, and when Luke writes, he just writes on the physical descendants of Jesus. Uh, but something that's really encouraging is, is both sides stem from David, and Jesus would still be the Messiah King. Uh, but something that's even more encouraging is, is if you just look at all the names in these genealogies, and, and what I like to think about it is if I started a suite from Zinke, and we all passed on the suite, and Daniel had to bring it up to me, especially in COVID, would I eat that suite that has been unwrapped, that everyone has touched? And the beauty is that the seed that was starting from Adam and all the way to Mary and Joseph, Jesus, oh, God was able to preserve and bring about the lamb who would take away the sins of the world. And this lamb would be spotless. That is an encouragement, at least to me. 
All right, now moving on. Um, the Old Testament people didn't, sorry, the Old Testament people didn't write out Yahweh and didn't use the name out of reverence for God. Today, we use Yahweh and sing it in songs and use it to describe God. Why can we use that name for God? We serve the same God as the people in the Old Testament, so surely we ought to have the same reverence for God. Okay, I'll start. Um, so, just a short Hebrew class here. So, when, when you speak about the name of God, now the Bible gives us a number of, of names. But now the, the name Yahweh, which is called the Tetragram... Tetragram... Tetragrammaton. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Thank you. Um, it, it's speaking about the covenantal name of, of God. Now, we actually don't know how that name is pronounced. Uh, first, because in the Hebrew, there's no vowels. And, and because that name um, was, uh, was not pronounced, so when, whenever in the scriptures they will be reading that, when it comes to the Tetragrammaton, they will only just say Hashem, that means the name. Um, and so Yahweh or Jehovah, um, those are vowels from other names of God, from Adonai, which then comes out that pronunciation of Yahweh or Jehovah. But we actually don't know exactly um, how the Tetragrammaton was pronounced. It was only uh, spoken on two occasions, and that was um, with, the, with, with the blessing, you know, the... Um, uh, yeah, the, the, the blessing that the priest will give and on the Day of Atonement. That, that, that is about it. Um, and then, why, why, can't, why can we say Yahweh or, or, or God? Um, uh, I, I think for me, and, I, and maybe Patrick can, uh, can also jump in here, but we know who, who it is. Jesus comes, and we know of the I am status. He's referring to, yeah, that, that name, that, that person who, who revealed himself to Moses before Abraham was, I am. Jesus is, is the great I am. And he takes on that, that term, and, and the Jewish people knew exactly what he was doing because they got stones to... Uh, to to throw at him, uh, because he was he was claiming this uh, divine, unspoken uh, name. So maybe Patrick can can add to that. And and I think the the, the name Yahweh uh, being the the name that God uh, revealed uh, Himself when He appeared to Moses in the burning bush. Um, in, in, in both the, the Old and the New Testament, there isn't any, you know, passage uh, that prevented or that prevents the people of Israel not to pronounce the name Yahweh. Um, they did it themselves out of, uh, you know, fear and, and great respect uh, about this God uh, who had revealed uh, himself uh, to them. Um, but it wasn't prescriptive. It is not something that God said, stop doing. 
And, and I think for us, uh, whether we use um, Yahweh or, or Jehovah, uh, you know, using the vowels of Adonai, A, O, and A, um, to come with Jehovah, um, we are referring to the God of the Bible. Uh, we are referring to the God who revealed himself to Israel. So whether we say Yahweh, Adonai, or Jehovah, or the Lord, we are referring to the one and only God who revealed himself to us through the pages of scriptures. Maybe, maybe just in terms of the spirit of the question, I think we're, it's coming from, and I think we do, we ought to have reverence uh, for the name of, of God. I think that is not out of, out of place, and, and we've got to uh, reverence. Um, but I think, you know, the, the, we, we see in the New Testament, um, after the resurrection, Thomas coming to Jesus and saying, my Lord and my, my God. And, and there, is, there, there is worship, there is reverence um, uh, to him in, in the name. So I think that is fitting, reverence is fitting. Uh, just wanted to add that. Cool. We're almost at the end here. Three more questions. Um, so this one might be a bit of a difficult one. It says, is the Genesis creation account literal or figurative? I ask this because I've recently come across the Egyptian, Babylonian, and Canaanite creation stories, and Genesis has a lot of elements that are found in all. For example, serpents, judgment of humanity by flood, what made this interesting for me was these creation accounts are said to predate the creation account of Genesis. My logic says, if or since, the author borrowed elements from other creation accounts, that would mean it, sorry, it's not, sorry, that would mean it is not literal. My follow-up question would be, if or since the author of Genesis borrow, borrows elements to tell us the story of how the cosmos came to be, does this invalidate it or damage it in any way? Right. I'll give it a tackle. <laughs> um, I think what, what Pastor Charles just said a moment ago is, is very important in terms of our presupposition regarding the scriptures. Do we believe that the scriptures are, are true. And, and that being our starting point. Or are we going to try to deconstruct uh, what is happening? So uh, it is true that there are uh, old um, myths in, and there is a Babylonian um, manuscript, and there is uh, uh, the most famous one is the Gilgamesh epic, which uh, um, they say it predate, predates Moses, um, and, and it speaks about the flood there. Um, so let me go. The first question was, should we take Genesis literal or figurative? I, I believe that we should take Genesis as, as literal. And for 1,800 years of church history, the church has, has taken it uh, more literal, and this is how the people of Israel who have received would have read it. Um, you know, um, the reason why uh, some of the some scholars are are are, th are thinking it might be figuratively is because of symmetry that can um, 
sound like a, a poem or a song. And so some will, will attribute that uh, to, okay, maybe it wasn't literal. Uh, however, on a closer look, it lacks some of the main um, features of, of poem or, or songs and hymns, and that is in Hebrew literature, uh, parallelism uh, that we see in the Psalms, uh, right? Um, and we don't see that, and it seems to have a more and this happened, and this happened, and this happened, as we read uh, Genesis 1. Now, when we go to, to well, there is all this from Babylon and um, Egyptian, and the, ep the Gilgamesh epic uh, speaks a lot, of, a lot of very close elements um, uh, in similarities to the narration of the flood, for example, uh, how do we deal with with that? And it, it seems that it predates. I think that the Bible actually gives us an answer, because uh, in Acts seventeen twenty six says that we all come from one man, right? And and we all come from Adam. And so what happened? What happened? We know what happened. The Bible says that. When the Tower of Babel happened, you know, the people groups were dispersed. Um, and so, it is very likely that you will have similar, as they were dispersed, and they tell stories to the next people of how things happen, uh, that you will have similarities. And so, a, a different, and yet, a different example of this, and I think, but it, it can still make the case is that you'll find cultures all over the world, um, very ancient cultures, having um, the same format, the ziggurat format, of the Tower of Babel. Where did they all get that from? Uh, and so we, we see from the scriptures that at one point, you know, all human beings were, were on one, one close space. And so as they were dispersed, they would take... Uh, um, the stories and all of that. Now there is embellishment and, and, and things like that. Um, the other thing is that when you examine closely, uh, for example, uh, at some of those narratives, um, they, they are inferior in uh, literature to the account of the Bible. So, for example, they, they, they won't add up in, in, for example, in the Epic of Gilgamesh, they will speak about uh, the flood, but it was only six days, and yet there was massive destruction everywhere. Um, we know that we, it, it would, and the, the boat, the way that the boat is described, wouldn't truly survive a flood. Um, and so when we, when we actually compare, um, it is... Um, it's not likely that uh, they, the, the Bible got the narration from them. Um, rather, it, it seems more plausible. This is the stories that they've, they've heard um, from, uh, from the a common ancestry, if I, I can put it that way. I don't know if I've answered all the, the <laughs> questions, but yeah, I hope, I hope I'm, I'm making sense. Maybe I could just add something quickly. It's amazing. I was at a um, creation event the one time, and, and the guy showed a, just the 
genealogies. He, he, sh he showed from Adam, for example, to, to Noah. And it's amazing how, um, if you just look at, at how long they lived and um, how they overlapped, it's, it's, it's like Noah knew one or two guys who knew Adam. It's crazy, you know, and, and, and we think of how things are passed on. And then you think it's just, so it's basically, it can be something like eight people down. And then it, or ten people down, it gets to Moses. You're like, whoa. But now to consider 900 people lived 900 years, 800 years, and, and they overlap as well. So so-and-so knew so-and-so knew so-and-so, 2,000 years gone. So it's just a, it was just a good, good thing to go, yeah, to go look at it on. However, we are sort of given a warning in First Timothy, and he says, um, I'll start from verse 3, chapter 1, verse 3, for some context. He says, and I urged you, uh, when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus, so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God, that is, by faith. So... A, a lot of these things we can speculate, but we have the truth. Um, myths will continue to arise. In fact, just in Genesis 1, Genesis 1 the theories and the, the, the myths that have come up from that passage alone, scary. Uh, we are to not get caught up in all that, but to remain on what is true and on what is going to be for the stewardship of our faith in Christ Jesus. National Geographic can be very dangerous. <laughs> And encouraging, because you see animals and rejoice in Jesus. <laughs> All right, so two more questions and we're done. Um, this one, probably the biggest question in our climate today. Social justice agenda. What's our church's stance on that? I think Isaac is going to speak to this. <laughs> Maybe while you're thinking, separate those two words, uh, social justice. The Bible is very clear that uh, justice is an important issue uh, amongst people, but even before God. Mm. I think the question, of course, doesn't relate to that. Uh, the social justice movement is, is a movement that is uh, not, um, it, it, it has not emerged out of biblical Christianity. So perhaps uh, you'd like to pick it up there, um, Isaac, and help us. Yeah, so we have a lot of time. <laughs> um, so maybe firstly, I, I want to, to address the, the issue of, of the name. And, and I think it's helpful for us to, um, to hold on to biblical terminology. Um, let me just by illustration. Today, this is what we have. We have reproductive justice. Another name for that is abortion. Economic justice. Another name for that is socialism. Environmental justice. Talking about climate change. Um, ethnic justice. Uh, after the riots that we saw in the States last, last year, and they were looting and all of that, some of the leaders of, of some of those movements just called it, it's ethnic justice. And so justice doesn't need a word before it. The Bible is, speaks about justice um, and, 
Uh, we don't need any ad adjective bef before that. Um, the, those, those that started the, the movement and those that are proponents of the movement are actually purposefully um, not clear in terms of the definition of what, it, what does it mean, social justice. Um, and so um, I got two definitions from their own um, proponents. Um, and one is the elimination of all forms of oppression. And then one from the um, United Nations, redistribution of wealth by public agencies. Now, to a certain degree, that might sound desirable. But on the first one, elimination of all forms of oppression, and, and, by, and how, how do we do this? They are using, and they admitted it themselves, a meta-narrative from critical theory that sees everyone either as oppressed or oppressor. And, and so every, every single person is, is, is uh, immediately either an oppressor or oppressor, and you're not, you're not set in individually, like by your actions or what, what you do, by, but by your uh, group identity or marginalization identity. Um, and when it speaks about redistribution of wealth by public agencies, that's just Marxism. Um, the, uh, one, one author, um, Scott Allen, who wrote the book, uh, Why Social Justice is Not Biblical Justice, just called social justice Marxism 2.0, because it, 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 is, it is literally regarding um, power and, uh, and uh, trying to forcefully uh, redistribute wealth, wealth um, uh, by government means. And so I, I could go on um, uh, for a long time on, on this issue, but here are a few problems with, with the social justice mo movement. It's partial. It shows part partiality. The Bible is clear about showing no one partiality. Even in the Old Testament, when it comes to judgment, do not favor the poor. It says, do not favor the poor in, in your judgment. Um, it's um, the human mind that defines what is real. We see this on the um, part of... And the social justice, it's a big umbrella, so part of the LGBTQ, for example, um, is they define reality. So, um, you know, if I am a, a transgender person, this is, this is reality. And so they're saying their own personal human mind is defining reality. And if you do not, um, and you ought to uh, accept and embrace this, this uh, reality. Um, another problem is that it says that we are the products of either our race or ethnicity, sex, or gender identities. So the individual, the individual is completely sucked up into no existence. What matters is those identities, those group identities. And and that every single problem in 
that we are facing today is due to the patriarchy, privilege, and oppression. Um, and so it assesses the problems uh, wrongly. It gives the wrong answers. Now, I do want to say that not every, let me, let, me, let me say, not every point that the social justice movement brings attention to, we should completely write off. There might be uh, issues that do deserve uh, our attention. However, um, the, the Bible and the scriptures are, are the ones that provide the true answer for it. Uh, it is the gospel of Jesus Christ. The, the gospel heals. The gospel uh, restores. Uh, when, when, when there is um, in, injustice and we see injustice all over the world and, and Christians should be about justice. Yes. Um, and, and when things don't, don't happen in, in accordance to justice, we, we have the word of God that says, justice is mine, says the Lord, and, and that justice will be uh, accomplished. And, and so the social justice movement is a, is a very dangerous movement. I would say it addresses, it perceives wrongly the problem with society. Everything is, is because of privilege or patriarchy or oppression. We know what's the real problem? Sin. And what, how, does, how does it try to fix it? Oh, it needs, to, it needs to oppress the oppressor, if I can put it <laughs> like that. And, and so we know that the, the answer is, is the gospel. There is forgiveness in the gospel. Um, and, and so, yeah, I need to stop. Otherwise, <laughs> I, think, I think our time is gone. So, you know, we can speak for hours. But I just wanted to add one thing. There is a third thing where Isaac spoke about the, the uh, oppression and oppressor in terms of the definition, whereas we understand the Bible to teach that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So everybody is in need of salvation. The salvation is to oppress the oppressor, as he said. But there's a third thing we need to remember, is the social justice movement does not accept absolute truth and does not accept, in terms of our context, uh, the revealed truth of Scripture. So truth in the social justice movement is lived experience. So whatever I experience or whatever you experience becomes your truth or becomes my truth. We can't accept that. We accept truth revealed from God, and we use that as the basis, objective, ultimate truth. We do not accept the social justice movement at Central Baptist Church. So, so maybe to bring us to the scriptures here, I think... Uh, something that that is beautiful is one of the things Isaac and I like to say to each other is, bro, let's go back to using biblical language. Um, in 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 the Bible, we understand that there's one race, the human race, uh, and we see racism as ethnic uh, prejudice. It's a prejudice between two people of different ethnicities, and we know that that prejudice is sin. Uh, we know that we all have this sin, and the issue with racism is. I can't be racist. As the world says, because I'm black, I can't be racist. But we understand in the Bible, we all are prejudiced, and we all need to be constantly be looking in our own hearts to see if there be any sin within us. 
Now, the reason why I bring this up is in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11, it says, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope without God in the world. There was a God-ordained separation. Jew and Gentile. But listen to this. But now in Christ, you who were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of two, so making peace. We all once were from Adam's race sinners, but now we are a chosen race from Christ. And, And because we're a chosen race from Christ, man, we can sit in this panel and everyone on this panel is a brother to me. Now, does that mean that prejudice does not exist? By no means it exists. And it's going to exist till Jesus comes back. The only thing that will change the hearts of anyone is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, We can try behavioral change. Like when we say to our children, nah, it's just a stage, it's adolescence. (laughs) No, it's sin. Likewise, where there's prejudice, it is sin. And sin's only solution is the gospel. So may we be those who hold the gospel highly. Answer something quickly. Please. Um, and I think it's important as well for us believers to understand that God has established the church to impact the world, change the world, and transform the world, but not the other way around. Mm. The church shouldn't change, transform um, the church of Christ. Sure. Um, and that we should, I think, fight with everything we've got to ensure that change happens from the church. We change the world and not the world to change or dictate us what we should do. Sure. Sorry, the last question I just realized um, is Pastor Charles's question. Um, <laughs> no, I... <laughs> um, yes, it's, it's a long one, but he said he would do well to summarize it. So, Pastor Charles, this is for you. Uh, how does a Christian man... Whoop, no, that's not it. This is it, right. Seeing that uh, Ramaphosa is also speaking now, it's, it's good to wrap up with this one. In view of these conditions, these are my questions. Does the state, in whatever form it takes, have any binding authority to limit, impede, or in any way hinder my efforts as a New Testament believer and priest to worship God in the regular corporate fashion I see commanded in the New Testament? Does the church, in its local expression and its overseers, have any such binding authority to do the same in regarding to individual believers or groups of believers who are under the authority and soul care? Does the danger of a pandemic or any other physical threat, however, sure, it's a big, big five rand word, um, I'll go with lethal, however lethal, uh, have any bearing or how we might answer question one and two. As a local church, what, what line are we not willing to uh, secede of our worship 
on the Lord's Day in obedience to government mandates and restrictions. For example, we are now limited to meet at a maximum capacity of 50 indoors. If this restriction was raised to 25 or 10 or 5, at what point will we be willing to disobey the restrictions in order to continue to obey God? If these state restrictions suddenly uh, metastasized, bro, easy English, um, <laughs> into restrictions against how we often meet, or where do we, or where we could meet, or in what manner, for what purpose, would there be lines here which we would refuse to yield up to? I'll wrap it there. Look, I think, Isaac, I'm not going to be able to answer that whole question. But, but just a couple of comments, and whoever asked that question, I think we'd like to enter into a, a, a bigger debate or a bigger discussion. I think we, we need to, uh, to say in the first instance that we as Baptists do believe in the separation of church and state. There's a historical reason for that, uh, in that uh, if you look down through the centuries, there was lots of confusion particularly down uh, through the era of the, the Roman Empire, where you had uh, at some seasons the, the, the emperor over the church, dictating to the church and, and contaminating and quite uh, uh, in reality distracting the work of the church. And then at other seasons you had the church, the pope, who was uh, uh, governing the, the state or the emperor. But long story short, in many other instances, uh, we have come to believe, and as Baptists, hold to the position of a separation of church and state, that the church, that the church does not have authority over the state to tell them how they ought to do their job in uh, what is prescribed for us in Romans chapter 13, that they are there to keep order. And uh, they, they are there for the good, for when citizens do good, they ought to commend them. When citizens do bad, they ought to uh, hold them uh, accountable. But we as the church, in spite of being separate in terms of authority, we are citizens in the country. We're part of the people of South Africa. And, and so when, when the government makes a decision, to use the specific example of this COVID uh, pandemic, we must ask ourselves, what is their intention? Is their intention to stifle and to, um, to victimize and to persecute the church? Is that the reason they're not allowing us to have a hundred or two hundred or five hundred people? Or is the reason we have these restrictions the well-being, physical well-being and health of people? Now we've been long enough in this pandemic to know that the COVID virus is real. All of us, most of us would certainly know already somebody who has died from this virus. Now there are all sorts of things, I'm not a medical person, I don't know that, but I, I know the virus at least to be real. So my understanding at this particular point in time is that the government is seeking to do good by protecting the citizens, by introducing some sort of uh, protocol. Now, are they doing too much? Are they doing too little? I think that's up for debate. Is the intention at the moment to persecute the church? I think it would be an exaggeration to say that. Because we're not the only ones they're restricting. All meetings, all public gatherings are not permitted. Um, so I don't think we're in the wrong by submitting to the government. We're called to submit to the government in matters of their responsibility. However, there is an interesting Greek word. Uh, the Greek word is hupotasso, that we should submit to the government 
And the word used is, uh, it's a combination of two words, hupo, which means under, and tesso, which means to arrange. Arrange, un, arrange yourself under the higher authority. So if the government tells us to do something, and the intention is to hurt the church and to do something which is contrary to what God is telling us, we'll do what God tells us. We see that again and again. We did a Bible study, or I did a Bible study on Wednesday night. You can find it on, on, on YouTube, on Romans 13, where we see the ideal role of government, but we know that government isn't perfect and isn't ideal, and they do fail in many instances. And down through history, there have been Christian men and women who've had to disobey government. And we may have to disobey government in days to come if they begin to prescribe that which is contrary to the will of God. So, Jabu, a big issue. I've tried to be short. I think I've confused everybody. I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, well, thank you, everyone, for being patient and staying with us. Um, we hope this was helpful. Uh, we will have another one. Yes, 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 we'll talk about it. Uh, but usually after the first one, you have more questions. So uh, we, we will probably schedule another one later in the year. Um, but for us, we enjoyed going through the questions and some of the prep work behind it. Um, and we hope that you were blessed. To close us off, uh, just to remind us in Second Thessalonians. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. God bless.